Everyone, the weekend is over. That means, unfortunately, you have to listen to another episode of Bomb in the Am with Scoops and the Wolf. Uh, and as is the case on most Mondays, we are joined by a guest, this time none other than Jim Sterling, uh, formerly of Destructoid, now of The Escapist and everywhere else that will have him. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That is... <laughs> th- that's my requirements for working. Uh, can you stand me for more than five minutes? I'll take the job. That's a good That's a good way, yeah. Just get into a room with someone or on a Skype call and just, you know, just set for five minutes. If we can get past five minutes, we'll probably be okay. How many, that- how many instances have you had where someone was just like three minutes in and it was just like, nope, I'm done. I'm good. Later. <laughs> there was one in, in the brief lull between Destructors and The Escapist where The Escapist was more or less on the cards, but I was looking at different options. There was one site which I won't, e- I won't name. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even get the three minutes. I knew, someone, I knew someone there I wanted to uh, work with that person specifically, so I was like, well, I'd be interested in working there, and the, the phrase was, he's not even prepared to have a conversation, <laughs> which... I'm having a conversation good. with you right now, so you know, I'm going to have to disagree with their premise. Well, you know, there's no accounting for text. Yeah, fair um, enough. You know, you know I, that's... That, that's uh, normally we start off talking about the games we're playing, but we're, since you bring, you know, your sort of your recent kind of job search up, figuring out what you were doing next. Uh, one of the things that you were experimenting with, and I'm not sure if you're still doing it, but I'm curious what you found, because uh, you started doing a lot of stuff on YouTube, uh, sort of building up you know, a subscriber base there, seeing uh, what the landscape is like there. And what we're seeing now are you know, a lot of people are building subscribers on YouTube, building their own base there, and that's just where they've started. Uh, whereas you, know, you are a little bit more like Alex and I, where it's kind of you know, come from a more traditional background and then seeing what it's like to build a base on YouTube, and I'm curious what what you found. Uh, Yeah, I mean, that came about from having the conversation last year that I think all the other games writers are going to have in about three years of, um, look at all these popular people, what the hell are we going to do? You know, it's it's interesting having just turned 30 and feeling a little out of touch. (laughs) So part of the, you know, I just wanted to see what it was like, what... Because um, it's a very different ecosystem, and I'm still experimenting with that. I, I do a YouTube thing like once a day, just for, just for the fun of it. It's it's a fun thing to do. It's easy. I can see why a lot of people like. Well, I say easy. It's it's easy to get into. It's still. Mm-hmm. I don't want to downplay the hard work that way harder working people on YouTube put in. Um, but it, it's it's that easy entry level. It reminds me of the internet the whole internet, you know, several years ago before it got totally saturated. Right. You just dive in, have a go. Um, you know, if you've got a recording software, you've got a microphone, you've got a game, you can do something interesting. You can also do something terrible, which is, you know, 90% of Let's Plays, let's be honest. <laughs> um, but then the really good guys just have that ease of access, or at least they did before um, Google started dividing the haves and the have-nots with the, the copyright stuff. Right. Um, which took some of the fun out of it, but yeah, I mean, it's it's been fun. It's been rewarding just watching that kind of thing grow on its own because I've never had to do things on my own. You know, I've, I've worked with Destructoid, IGN, um, uh, Game Pro, just all these different places uh, where there's already an audience, and I just had to play to them. Um, whereas here, it's like trying to build up an audience completely on your own, and it's it's been fun. It's been fun to do. 
Before yeah. you, uh, I'm sorry, just before you move, uh, eventually decided to sign on with The Escapist, was there ever a temptation to just be like, you know, I could just build this YouTube channel. I could just, you know, start living off YouTube ads. I could just make this my thing, you know, on my own from here on out. I, I was interested. I'm very interested because um, I recently started talking with John Bain at Total Biscuit a lot. Mm-hmm. And I do envy the kind of the sense of, of autonomous uh, direction he has. Uh, you know, he invited me on his podcast a few months ago, and he was just like, "Yeah, well, I can just have whatever I want. On. I can do whatever I like." And I'm like, "I really envy that." Uh, but timing was timing, and I, my YouTube channel isn't really like it's grown pretty fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's you know, there's no way I could live off it now or, or for the foreseeable future. Sure, it takes a uh, lot. Like when you look at, you know, maybe what you would. Uh immediately considered to be a lot of views for a video does not equate to a lot of money at all. No, uh, <laughs> yeah. It also depends where you go. I mean, I could um, get the same amount of views on a YouTube video that I get for, say, Jimquisition on The Escapist. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't earn anywhere near as much um, right. money for it, uh, which did make me laugh, actually, when YouTube was uh, taking all the um, monetization off of my most popular YouTube videos, which were hugely popular, you know, just like up to like maybe 50,000 views or something, mm-hmm. um, and caused me to rant about it on the Junquisition, uh, where I earned a shitload of money, more than making up uh, what YouTube had taken. So it is all about the venue you go to and, and you know, what companies are, are backing you and what ads you get and who's watching and who's ad-blocking you and just all these different factors. Um, so yeah, I mean, Junquisition is, is how I pay my bills and... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, to be honest, I'm just looking for different ways to uh, get out of the traditional games journalism racket. Because mm-hmm. I, I never felt like I, I fit in there the same way a lot of other people do. Uh, and I wasn't, to be honest, very good at it. Uh, I got a lot of criticisms when I used to post news on Destructoid of being sensationalist and, and trolling. And looking back, a lot of those criticisms were kind of true. Because I, I am very from the heart, rant first, think later, which mm-hmm. works fine for a video series like Junquisition, where it's purely an opinion. And when you're doing news, it just looks like you're being the Daily Mail or the Sun. And uh, last year I decided I didn't want to be that, and I didn't want... I was never comfortable with the game journalism term itself. Um, so really just trying to get out of that. Uh, I still do re- game reviews because I love games criticism. Um, but when it comes to posting news, uh, doing press releases and going to things like E3 and doing game previews and stuff. I can't... I, I just realized last year I can't do that anymore, which was one of the, the fundamental reasons why me and Destructoid parted ways was, you know, they, their business model is still very focused on that, which is valid, but mm-hmm. I, I can't do it. Not anymore. I think that's that's kind of unfortunate, actually, just because... I. I don't know. I feel like there's room in the no, the the overarching umbrella of games journalism for you know yes the very straight laced you know news style presentation and for people who are you know much more opinionated have a lot more you know uh, personal stake in what they're writing about and you know obviously you know you have your video forum and you have other places where you can express that but. You know, I, I find the idea that, you know, news can only be written from this dry sensibility of absolute factual information with no opinion whatsoever kind of depressing, to be honest. Oh, uh, don't get me wrong. I, you're totally right, 
I do think that new, dry news doesn't interest me. I like news yeah. with uh, personality. The thing is, it's got to be done by someone who's good at it. Right. Uh, someone who can still be professional, uh, which is something I sometimes struggle with being. Right. So, <laughs> I think all of us sure. <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's why I decided, I, I just well, I wasn't enjoying it. I didn't feel I was good at that kind of thing. I, you know, it took me, God, about six years to realize I wasn't very good at that side of the business. <laughs> but uh, I'm happier where I am just concentrating purely on, on opinions and and that sort of thing, editorial, Good. rather than any kind of news. Glad. So, Alex, what uh, what, what did you spend your time with this weekend? Did you get any time with actually any actual video games? Threes. I started playing threes. Oh man, that game is that game is something else, isn't it? Can't stop fucking playing threes, dude. <laughs> so threes is a uh, a brand new puzzle game uh, from two guys. I don't know the other guy. I know the other guy because he works in the cards office. Greg uh, Greg Woland. He uh, was the the designer on uh, or a designer on Ridiculous Fishing as well. He's worked on a bunch of really successful uh, iOS games. And uh, yeah, Threes is his new puzzler, which you just played it. Do you want to explain kind of how it works? Yeah. So you get a board and everything on the. It's just like you know a number type puzzle game where you have to kind of move numbers into each other. Um, you start out of a board that just has some threes, some twos, and some ones. Threes can go into other threes, which then turn into sixes, and then you can only match sixes with other sixes and so on. Twos and ones eventually just become threes, and you just swipe up, down, left, right, whatever, back and forth to try and make those numbers fit into larger numbers, and you're trying to match them into the largest numbers you can before you run out of available moves on the board, basically. Uh, it is really simple. Most games take about you know three minutes before you fail miserably to even crack a 1,000. Um, and it is one of the more stupidly addicting things I've, I've gotten my hands on in the last several months. Uh, I spent a lot of Saturday playing that game for that stupid game. I had to charge my phone three times because I kept running it down. What did you get? What would your score get up to? Uh, the highest I got was 7,600 once. Okay. That's about... So I've been kind of playing around with it, but mostly it's been uh, my wife stealing my phone and my iPad till it finally came out, and then she could buy it for, for her own devices, because uh, I had been playing an early copy, yeah. and she's about uh, hovering in that area. I think she's gotten 10,000 once, but it's there. I'm going to try and actually get Greg to do it live. I'm going to buy like the hookup for an iPad, um, and then maybe stream something out of the cards office later this week, because watching Greg play his own game is this incredible, intimidating beast of a thing that makes you never want to play threes again, because his high score is something up in the 60,000s, oh, um, which is like unfathomable, unfathomable when you play that game, um, that you could somehow score that high. So right. I'm thinking about, uh, i got to order that device, and I think I might have him on and, and walk me through some, <laughs> hey, you'll never want to play threes again once you watch this person play it. Yeah, the highest score on my friends list I think is like Kyle Orlin right now, which is like 8,800, which to me even still seems ridiculous because I, I, I cracked 7,000 once and I have not even come close since then. Uh, I think the highest score on the leaderboard right now is something like 99,000, which I have to imagine is you know someone doing some, some really insane shit there. But yeah, I, I don't care. I don't care if I'm good at it or not. I don't care if I, I, I can't stop playing it, and it's really unfortunate. Well, it's, it's, it's a weird game in, in that... Uh... It's deceptively simple, which is why it's really fun and easy to get into. Um, but a lot of what you're doing is, you know, you're you're when you clear parts because you combine a card that right. allows you to bring a new card onto the board. And they, th I think they give you a preview of what's coming. They do, right? 
They give you a freebie um, with the color. Sometimes the, the the white ones, which are the threes and any number above, they they don't tell you what number's coming up. Like, if you have a bunch of 12s on the board, another 12 might show up or another three, but it's, you know, the ones and the twos, you know what those are because they're color-coded, so. Right, right. And so, you know, basically the game, like, especially when you get into situations where you don't have a whole lot going on, uh, you kind of want to just try and shuffle in new cards. And if you don't work really work with the deck that you have, you're going to get yourself in a situation where you kind of run out of spaces and then, then the game is over. Um, and the right. game really seems to play upon that uh, sort of tension of getting frustrated with what you have and not sure what you should do with it uh, and then wanting to get more stuff on the board but you know it only takes a swipe or two to go wrong and then suddenly you can't do anything. Yeah and then it gets real wrong and you're real bummed because you thought you were on a really good roll and then all of a sudden it just comes crumbling down around you. It's it's sadness in a game yet I can't stop playing it. God damn it. Yeah, it's incredibly simple, um, and and that it was. Uh, I had a bunch of friends over um, on Saturday night to play a bunch of uh, like instead of going to like the bars and stuff like that for my birthday, I had just a bunch of people over and we played local multiplayer games. And when people weren't playing, you know, participating in one of the games that was happening on the TV, like basically threes was just getting passed around, you know, like a group of fifteen people, right? And, and selling versions of it to people who had iOS devices and bumming people out uh, that had Windows or, or Android phones because it is not available on either of those, and uh, I don't believe it'll be around if it's there for, for a long, long time. As if people who have Windows phones aren't bummed anyway, regardless. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good yeah. point. Uh, Jim, did you play anything this weekend? I have an Android phone. That entire conversation <laughs> boring us out. <laughs> I did recently trade that in. Um, well, I traded in a Windows phone for it, so I am officially out of Bumsville. You're so, moving your way up slowly towards yeah. iOS. <laughs> Android at least has games. You know, there's something to the Android iOS. There's 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 value there. Windows. Oh, I love Android. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I got rid. Of, I had a, a Galaxy, then I traded it in, and got a Windows phone for some reason. Uh, and I'm, I'm back on the, the Galaxy now. I had a, one of the, the Lumia 920. Gorgeous phone. Beautiful phone. Fucking mm. useless. Useless. I may as well have just... I, you could use it. It was heavy enough. You could use it to beat a boy to death with. <laughs> I could do that. But that gets old after a couple of times. So. Uh, you can't yeah, have that so. on the back of the box either. It doesn't... Something, something about uh, morals, ethics? I don't know. I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm a games reviewer. We don't know what those words mean. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, but yeah, I've been playing that uh, loadout, the the free to play game. How is that? How is yeah. about that? Is that it's violent? It's very violent. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Uh, you take damage throughout the, the game. You know how you you get more and more scarred up as you get shot. Except here, like just whole chunks of armor flying away until somehow you're still pulling the trigger when your elbow is missing and it's just bone. <laughs> <laughs> no, no tendon pulling everything. It's just bones sticking out, and when you die, you could get cut in half, and you have to run the legs around for a little bit before you fall over, or you know, burn to death quite graphically. Like it's not just comedy fire. The body is blistering and blackening, um, but it's all got this cartoon aesthetic. It's very, very itchy and scratchy like. It's called like Saturday Morning Soldier of Fortune, if you remember that game, and it's <laughs> yeah. horrifying, dismembering tech that I thought was super cool when I was a teenager and that game came out. Oh, yeah, teenagers are going to love Lowdown. It's, <laughs> but it's got that kind of charm to it there where I don't think too many people... I know some people who have watched videos of it have commented that it, it's... Even with the cartoon visuals, it's still a bit too graphic. But I like it. It's 
it's come out at a time when obviously people are talking a lot about free-to-play business models, and this one just has a really good one because it's it's like they give you gameplay first and then build up audience goodwill, and then the audience wants to spend money, which is this incredibly innovative tactic in today's age of giving <laughs> someone a good product first and worrying about taking their fucking money later. So I can respect that, and it's yeah, it, it helps that it's just a solid game as well, like just re- very good arena shooter that costs nothing to get into, and even to to be good at. Like the basic weapons are all very good, possibly better than the more exotic stuff you can buy, which is all done with in-game currency. The the premium stuff, you get some XP boosts with it, and um, aesthetic stuff, but otherwise brilliant. Um, so that's had a lot of my time. Uh, I've also been playing for a review, uh, Tweak Kiden, the the Kobe Monster Hunter-like thing on PS Vita, which I think is out on Tuesday, mm. which is it's pretty good. I can't say too much about it. I think there's something bargained. Um, this is what I was saying about me being professional. I, th- <laughs> I, th- I think I'm not allowed to say things about it, but... Well, I guess well, here's here's a question. Do you are you a Monster Hunter guy? Like, how do you go into a game like this uh, based on on sort of like previous games of this type? Funnily enough, I've tried to get into Monster Hunter and never really been able to. I recognize it's a really good game. Mm-hmm. Something about it's never clicked with me. Monster Hunter ripoffs, I seem to enjoy. I don't know <laughs> what it is. Uh, Ragnarok, the PS Vita's swimming in them. There's Ragnarok Odyssey, there's Soul Sacrifice, and there's this. And mm-hmm. can't get enough of them. I don't know what it is about the original that just doesn't work, but just for me, it just it just doesn't seem to click. I know. I know. For some folks, it's uh, like sort of like the animation priority, which is you know something that's in Dark Souls, something that's in Monster Hunter. You know, just kind of the idea that a lot of third-person combat action games, we have been trained to expect that you are going to be able to do a lot very quickly, get you know get out of situations uh, in in a way that's a little more dynamic. And Monster Hunter, sort of front and center, one of the things it teaches you, just like Dark Souls, is that look, when you when you choose to do an attack, hey, you're going to commit to this, and you know. For better or worse, and often for worse, uh, that's the attack you're going to use in in that specific instance. Yeah, I mean, there is that. My my main problem with that system is usually the same rules don't apply to the guys you're fighting. Sure. You'll hit them, and they won't cancel out of their attack. They'll cancel the hell out of yours, (laughs) uh, which I find very frustrating. Um, To be fair, though, I mean, Soul Sacrifice, Ragnarok, Odyssey, they all do that as well. Okay. Um, So I... Maybe it's just the the last time I tried to play Monster Hunter was a while ago. I mean, maybe I can. I've had the the Wii U one sat uh, just over there for ages. I, I should like open the box and <laughs> and, and try it because I'm yeah. I, sh- I should give it another go. I think uh, I, the Wii U one was the first one that I like sunk like real hours into. I I tried to give it a solid like eight to ten hours because everyone tells me that plays Monster Hunter that you know. The first five hours or so are really just not that fun. Like it's a real hump to get over just the design philosophy because it's just very contrary to a lot of what we see out of either just traditional combat action games or that are in third person or just Western design philosophy that tends to uh, favor the player having a little more agency uh, in the middle of combat. Um, whereas Monster Hunter, you know, asks you to commit to things um, in some pretty profound ways. And also just lose a lot before you win. Uh, whereas a lot of you know free to play design philosophy, a lot of just Western focused tested design philosophy is all we want to make sure the player advances, um, yeah. or they choose to engage in higher difficulties that uh, they have to sort of lose in order to to win. Um, so I gave that about ten hours, and I got far enough to sort of really get 
what makes it appealing, and I, you know, I, I sort of d dilute uh, Monster Hunter down into it's just a series of really, really tough boss battles. And if that sounds appealing to you, then I think Monster Hunter uh, could have a lot of appeal for you. But also, what hurts it for me and why I ended up finding a game like Dark Souls more appealing, um, just you know, despite having pretty similar design DNA, is that uh, Monster Hunter is fundamentally basically a multiplayer game that you only play single player if you're maybe farming for things and uh, exploring new worlds, but like it is really meant to be a multiplayer experience that you're playing with friends or other folks. Uh, whereas you know Dark Souls, I really got into because I could do it by myself, and I just don't. I tend to shy away from multiplayer games because it's just not where I spend a lot of my time. That's fair enough. I mean, plus I I also I think the last time I played Monster Hunter was in a pre Demon Souls world. Yeah. So and I I fell in love with Demon Souls and and later Dark Souls. So I don't know. Maybe that's toughened me up a bit, <laughs> grew me up some, and then I can maybe give Monster Hunter another go. I'm trying to remember the last time I actually played a Monster Hunter game, and I think I still worked at GameSpot, so, and I think it was Ryan actually saying, can you play this for a minute just so I can make sure I'm not an asshole for hating this, and I told him, <laughs> no, you're not an asshole for hating I hate this too, so. I mean, those games have been around for a while. It's easy to forget how long Monster Hunter has been mm -hmm. alive and kicking. I mean, that was a PS2 game originally. I remember the very first trailer still. I, I saw it. I thought, this looks awesome. Look at the size of that sword. Is it made of a skeleton? That sword's made of a skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I always loved the design of it. Yes, that, just the ridiculous size of everything. Like, except for the player. The player's armor, huge. The player's sword, huge. The dinosaur's massive. The player, little guy. Just like a little Ewok running around. I, I, I always loved the design of Monster Hunter. Yeah, and, I and I think, actually, uh, to some extent, the way uh, sort of the rise of Western games and uh, sort of the, some of the struggle of Japanese game developers to adapt, um, you know, especially once the Xbox 360 and PS3 came around... Um, I think a lot of people just got a little more used to sort of Western design philosophy, you know, that was very much about players immediately pressing start in a game and having fun. And I think that's part of the reason games like Dark Souls and Monster Hunter have found, you know, uh, very vocal, uh, if smaller audiences, um, because there's just not that many games that say, hey, fuck you. Learn how to play this yeah. game before you're good at it. And I don't know. There's just not a lot of there's just not a lot of those when you play uh, most most traditional no, big not, box AAA not games. Especially. Not even in Japan now. Like so many Japanese studios want to appeal to the West that they will try and do that themselves. And it might not be that studio's particular strength. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's I do uh, I got a ton of respect for the Souls games and. It's nice to have them. There's obviously room for both, and and I'm glad that we have all sorts of different experiences and they don't exist at the... I'm starting to sound like a therapy group. <laughs> what, I know what the show is, honestly. And, and I think what's, uh, you know, it's funny that you, you know, bring up that those games, you know, some Japanese developers, you know, may be thinking like, oh, we have to appeal to the West, whereas I think what makes, uh, you know, the Souls games so unique is that they are, they are what From Software has been doing for a very, very long time. If you go back and play, you know, the Kingsfields games um, and even the, the Armored Core series to an extent, like, From Software has just been doing what it's been doing. Uh, the, and the, then, yeah, they appeal to themselves. Yeah. From right. Software appeals to From Software because fuck you. 
Right. And I can totally respect that. I, I think it was Pete Hines at Bethesda I spoke to once when I was talking about, because they're a company that seemed to be one of the last big publishers that will put out original IP and take a gamble on stuff. And I was talking to them about stuff like Dishonored and uh, The Evil Within and everything. And he said their main philosophy was, we, we just have developers make games the developers want to make. And I really think that's... That's how you get quality product, quality and successful products. Because you know, no one's a no one's a unique snowflake. If you make something that appeals to you, it's going to appeal to other people. Um, if you cynically try and focus test and appeal to just some nebulous demographic, I think that's when you start struggling to appeal to people because nobody likes to try hard. So I think that's again at the root of the Souls games' success is. From software and making the games from software wants to make, and it turns out a lot of people want to see them make those games. And that's, I think, that's awesome because even though I am not much of a Souls fan, I remember back when I first got my Xbox, one of the first games I ever bought for that system was Otogi: Myth of Demons, and yeah. that fucking game was badass, and no one bought it. No one bought no. that damn game. Very so. pretty game too. Extremely pretty game. One of one of the the best looking original Xbox games. So I'm if nothing else, I am just super glad to see them getting theirs all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it seems uh, seems like Dark Souls Two is is poised to be uh, pretty darn big for them. I I imagine that's gonna that's gonna, it's gonna be a hit for them. Yeah. Um, the other game that I played this weekend uh, that actually weirdly ties into uh, our guest is that I played a, a whole lot of jazz punk. Ah, and uh, I've heard that game's pretty decent. It's, yeah, you know what's what's amazing about it is a lot of the jokes are just so dumb, but mm -hmm. they're so earnest and just to the point that I couldn't help but laugh at them. It's it's really weird in a way because I think it's it's, it's lowbrow with kind of a highbrow sensibility. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that's the way the way to put it. Uh, where it's like, if you actually were to just explain the joke that just occurred to someone, like, what? That's not very funny. But it's all about the framing and the general sense of the universe, and, and the often that it's and the timing, and often that it's just very quick. Like, even yeah. if it's a really dumb joke that there's not a whole lot to, it's over in about ten seconds, and it's like, well, if you didn't like that one. Don't worry, there's another one around the corner. Well, it plays into that, what we were just talking about, about developers making the games that, the, that appeal to the developers. Um, if you ever talk to Lewis, the guy who made it, uh, he's like that. Like, he is jazz punk in human form. Just, just got this blunt sledgehammer wit to him where he will just blurt out some weird, random thing that is clearly random, Sounds like it makes just enough sense that you don't want to just call it random. Uh, and he's, yeah, very unique individual, very strange individual, and I say that <laughs> with the greatest of respect. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's what led to Jazz Punk being the kind of game it is, is because there's an honesty to it. The guy's not just trying to make people laugh. He it, is it, naturally that person. It really shows in just the, the style. Like, the, you know, the thing I said in my review was that yeah, it's completely insane, and the jokes seem to come in from every which way, but it all feels like it's part of, like, a uniform vision. Like, it mm -hmm. is part of one person's particular artistic vision, and that in and of itself is kind of a rare thing. You know, you don't get a lot of games that, you know, have that level of, of individual personality in them. For them to actually be really funny on top of that is fucking ludicrous. That never happens, you know, and I, that is the kind of thing... I want to foster way, way more of as we go along here because that I want I want more games like Jazz Punk like that I want more people who are that funny to be able to like bring that vision to life the way they want to on their own terms. 
Yeah, it's it's. I think there's you know a uh, philosophy that we're kind of talking about a little bit in some of these these games, and even you know the idea of uh, you know being on 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 YouTube and and things like that. I think there's kind of a through line there in the sense that you know what the through line would be is that watching such naked honesty and seeing it's like someone just create something that's essentially for themselves, but hoping or feeling like you know they have good taste or what they like others will like as well, and then watching something that pure coming out and, uh, and other people getting behind it as well is a really cool thing. Um, and I imagine that's really satisfying to create uh, or be a part of as well uh, is something that just exists because, hey, man, I, I want this to exist, and then I figure some other people will probably kind of come along the way as well, which, yeah. you know, that's if, if there's any way to summarize Giant Bomb, like, it's a thing we do for ourselves that we're really happy that tons of other people think is cool too because, thank God, that allows us to do it for a living. That's the now, way Jim, to do it, yeah. Jim, how did you end up uh, doing some voice acting for this game? What was what was the pro- how did you in, in, end up getting involved? Well, the road to becoming a critically acclaimed actor, uh-huh, yes. um, <laughs> which is technically what I am, because Chris <clears> Carter <throat> distracted said I was good, so that's real now. No one can say otherwise. Is um, I, I knew Lewis uh, way back, and uh, Max Scoville, uh, who is with Destructoid, is uh, good friends with Lewis. So he's kind of he'd been hanging around. He was reading Destructoid. He used to listen to the podcast I did there, Podtoid, mm-hmm. a lot, um, which is now the Dismal Jesters since I left. Um, mm-hmm. And our podcast has a lot of that weird humor as well. Um, so we he found it funny, and therefore thought, well, if I'm making this kind of game that has these similar kind of skewed uh, senses of humor, uh, then he might be a fit for it. So we talked, and there was, at one point I was going to be the director, like the guy who gives you the missions, uh, but I we just didn't have the time to get that done at the time, uh, as far as I know. Either that or he thought I was shit. So I ended up doing some other stuff. So I, I played a, a couple of characters in the resort. Uh, level, and yeah, I mean that was really it. Just sort of mutual respect for each other's work, because um, I played Beetle Nought, the game he did beforehand on Android, and yeah, maybe like, just just knowing the right people, which is how I've got some other future work coming up as well. Just just knowing the right people and sure. pulling the right strings, and getting drunk on and berating indie developers on Twitter and telling <laughs> them to give you a job actually gets. Certain people, I don't recommend everyone does it, but it did get me another gig, so that can work sometimes. Terrific. Now I know one of them that you play is the uh, be uh, uh, the monocled uh, fancy person Xavier Esperanto. Who's the other character that you end up playing? The other character. Anyway, uh, the <laughs> other the other character is um, it's it's a little harder to find because she's not. Uh, too far from Xavier mm-hmm. is if you go round to the wet bar, there's a swimming mm-hmm. pool round the back of the resort, there's a wet uh, bar, there's a fruit hat on the yeah. bar, you click on that and, and I'm the Carmen Miranda officially, but clearly Rita Repulsa. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, I was the I was playing this game uh, yesterday, uh, and I finding a deeply embedded Power Rangers reference mm-hmm. in this video game I didn't. I had to turn. I had to put down the controller. <laughs> profoundly, not only affected me because I was super into Power Rangers uh, when when that show was super popular, uh, but just 
why would you put that in a video game? Like, that's, like, it's such Not a... Not just deep... that, but use it to deliver a Fruit Ninja reference at the same oh, time. Oh, my <laughs> just God. that sense of comedy that Lewis has. Layers upon layers. Like, I had, to, pa- I had to pause it and go, like, that... That didn't happen. There's no way that that was a Rita reference because why would you do that? Like the amount of people that maybe maybe there are more people than I would assume uh, would pick up on that. But I I had to like break down what just happened to my wife and she's just shaking her head at me. She's like, I don't understand what you do for a living. Why I, this? Well, it's a playing. perfectly sensible story. Rita reports yeah. threw a banana at me. What's to not get? God, <laughs> unbelievable. And so. How do you, I, you know, you're someone that started out like doing, you know, and is still doing media stuff, and so you're still out there, you know, you're you're a critic, you're reviewing games, commenting on things, but you're also, you know, dipping your toe in in some ways into development uh, in in certain capacities, and you know, sort of, you know, going over certain uh, lines with developers in terms of working on them ahead of uh, a game coming out. So how do you feel about that as you're sort of transitioning to that and doing? kind of being in both worlds at the same time when most folks tend to sort of just do one or the other? Uh, It's an interesting thing. Um, There was a time when I was thinking maybe doing some narrative as well, which I may still do, but some people argue that if you're going to be a critic of games, you should make games uh, before or during doing that, which I don't necessarily agree with, but at the same time, uh, when I was examining my career up to this point, the life of a game critic or any kind of games media uh, person is is kind of parasitic in that we kind of need this other industry to exist and we very much just take from it. Um, we certainly contribute to the, the culture of, of games, um, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I, I blew all my water on culture. Okay, <laughs> um, but, you know, we, all, we, we contribute to the online community or whatever you want to call it or not sure. call it. Um, but at the same time, we can't exist without that. And I was thinking just it would be nice to contribute to the art side of it and not just the, criti- the critical side of it, which is just... You know, uh, it, it just be a bit more artistic and say that I've done this and, 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 and help contribute to a medium that I obviously have a lot of respect and love for. Um, I can't program for shit. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm too lazy to learn to program. Uh, but I can talk a lot until people tell me to shut up. So if I can use that to try and contribute in some way artistically to video games, then that's what I'm going to do. Uh, so... I decided that that would be the avenue to pursue at the moment. Is 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 in my goal for the end of the year, as I, I said a few days ago, is to be the Troy Baker of jobs too small for Troy Baker to do. <laughs> okay. uh, and and so far that's working because as said, jazz punks come out. Uh, I am um, I recently got the role of a villain in uh, Laura Kate's You Are the Reason, uh, which is a, a game she's going to have a demo out for soon. Um, and myself and Jonathan Holmes and Conrad from uh, two guys from Destructoid are going to be in a, uh, an RPG called Lisa, which got um, successfully kickstarted recently. And there's one other one that I still can't talk about. Cool. I I, I definitely sympathize uh, with the uh, existential crisis that I think I don't know if everyone goes through this in this job, um, but I I certainly have felt over the years is is that feeling that you are just uh, a parasite and uh, commenting on other things, you know, things that people uh, spend years creating, whether you're talking positively about it or negatively about it, 
but just the idea that you know you can only exist because of what other people do and I, I can you know I've always I've just kind of like made my peace with that my the way I've always dealt with that problem is that you know if I'm doing my job correctly um, when I'm not doing you know like sort of like general reporting and, and things like that if I'm you know being a critic and and writing essays about games and the time I've spent with them you know I am privileged enough to spend all of my day thinking about um, often not playing but definitely thinking about uh, playing video games and what I can do is put into words or you know in a video or, or whatever format it comes out what people want you know they don't they don't necessarily have the time to to properly express what they think or love about a video game and if if I can turn that into something that they can view or they can read and they better understand why they enjoyed or didn't enjoy an experience I feel like that is totally meaningful to the discussion and and adds to game culture that isn't just you know I get to exist because other people make things, and if they didn't do that, then I wouldn't be around. Yeah. And, I, and I, mean, I feel pretty yeah, okay I, with that. I totally don't mean disrespect. So uh, no, 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 I completely believe me. I, I mean, obviously, I do this job. I, there's a reason I, I don't want to give up game criticism to do other things. I want to do other things and still do game criticism. I want to sure. keep doing game criticism till the heart attack takes me, you know. But at the same time, it's it's more of a personal kind of. I, I'm never satisfied with just what. Is happening at the moment, you know, sure. I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an insecure tosser like most writers. Yeah, uh, and and I, you know, I think art, you know, game criticism, any kind of art criticism, is in itself an art form. Uh, to craft a, a beautifully written criticism of something is magnificent to behold. If you if you've ever read some truly wonderful art criticism, it's it's beautiful in its own right. Um, but just from my own standpoint, as someone who tries to do lots of different things, uh, I just felt like I, I felt like I had to try and make some small contribution to that side of the fence, as well as the side that I obviously make my living off of. Yeah, that makes that makes uh, that makes complete sense. Um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to bring up two topics before. Uh, we bring to the show to a close. The one is that if you if you guys have been following all this Flappy Bird stuff, even if you haven't mm-hmm. played the game, it's kind of hard to ignore uh, at this point. But basically, Flappy Bird is everywhere. Yeah, for people that aren't caught up with what happened over the weekend, uh, you know, Flappy Bird is a uh, terrifyingly simple uh, video game in which there's a bird and you tap the screen for it to flap, and it's exceedingly difficult um, and it has some pipes that look a little bit like something from Super Mario Brothers, but uh, the game came out in March of last year uh, and then skyrocketed into popularity uh, in December. Um, really culminated... There you go. And then That's Flappy Bird. <laughs> and in recent, in recent weeks, it's really, really taken off to the point where uh, the guy is making... Uh, was making he, I think he did an interview with The Verge, disclosed he was making basically $50,000 a day uh, off the game. It's a free game. There is no in-app purchases. Uh, it is strictly has ads uh, inside mm-hmm. of it, which you know, we, you know, when we talk, of, you know, I think it's one of the missed stories about that game, and especially contrasted to, you know, what is happening with like Dungeon Keeper and Tales of Fantasia and other games with really exploitative free-to-play business models, is that Flappy Bird, for whatever you think of it, was making a ton of money just by being popular and having some ads in it. Uh, no bullshit. You know, you might hate the game. Might not like what it represents, but you know, in terms of it making money in an honest way, it did that. 
Um, and so the game became very popular, but then its creator was uh, getting bombarded uh, with requests for interviews and just in general on Twitter he was getting just uh, bombarded. And eventually uh, he decided to uh, take the game down. It is officially gone. It is not on the App Store um, anymore. It might be in a couple of countries just because the App Store hasn't updated. But um, as a result of announcing that he was taking it down, like the dude has been seeing just an unbelievable amount of abuse online. I'm not sure how much you guys have seen of it. Yeah, I, I actually caught your um, tweets on the matter last night. Um, I mean, I found the whole story fascinating, uh, not just from the, the success story itself, but obviously all the other stuff. Uh, you, you had Jason Trier at Kotaku, um, was very angry at the game, and talked about its um, stolen art, um, right. which infringe infringing art, technically, yeah. if it is. Although it didn't I, actually rip art out of other games to no, make that game. It's, it's not. it's not really theft. Uh, yeah. In... in to be honest, I'm not even sure if it's infringement because they are they are different models, uh, blatantly unoriginal. Don't get sure. me wrong, but it did look like he changed just enough to not have anything illegal or infringing going on. Um, there was that, and then obviously criticism of him stealing another game, which was released in like 2011 or something about a helicopter that did much the same thing. Um, it's hard to always tell where it's hard to tell where any successful um, mobile game comes from, because there's always going to be a dozen of them. Um, so it was difficult. Like, there were a lot of people, a lot of rumors about it, you know, that he wasn't really earning 50 grand a day, that uh, bots were responsible for the success, that it was all a false contrived meme, and there were other people that saying it was honest, and you had other people implying that people were angry at the game through sheer jealousy. Um, it was a, just the sheer emotional response that game has gotten from people when it is at its core a dumb game about a bird. Right. Uh, is interesting and fascinating. Um, as far as him taking it down and, and stuff, just the... I mean, I, I can hardly blame him. Like, a lot of people say, well, you wouldn't just give up $50,000 a day. If he was earning $50,000 a day, he's probably got enough right now where he doesn't feel like he needs another fifty grand to work. Um, and, and and I think I forget who it was who said it um, I'm, I'm annoyed I forgot but they said it's a good sort of counter argument against the idea that money can buy happiness because you know if, if you're going to be the most hated man in the game industry for a while is it worth 50 grand a day a lot of people might say well yes it is but then a lot of people haven't been attacked the way that guy's been attacked. I mean, I earn a, I, I'm doing my dream job right now. There have been days where I've wanted to pack it in and come very close to quitting. I mean, I feel like the, the, the reaction has way less to do with the game itself and more to do with this weird perceived offense over it being so popular. Like, the idea that somehow a game that dumb and that, you know, theoretically plagiarized, though kind of not really is that, like, was the number one game in the App Store for so long. And I think, you know, that when things like that are become very popular, the people who are inclined to do things like send absurd death threats to de developers fucking mobilize because they see that as some sort of weird threat to their own perception of what games should be good or should be popular or whatever. It's the same dumb shit that every other indie game creator gets when they make something that doesn't fall in line with, you know, what various corners of the internet think games are supposed to be. This just happens to be a really extreme and really weird example of that. Yeah, and, I, and I, the thing that, you know, really resonates with me about how all this has played out is it also, people don't, you know, like, Jim, like you mentioned, like, it's 
people forget empathy in these situations. Like, it's easy to look <clears throat> at like the the thing that I tweeted, which is like a bunch of lists of of death threats uh, from folks for um, him taking the game down. Which also those people don't understand him taking the game down does not remove it from your phone. I think there's a fundamental. Oh, you just saw me play on the bloody thing. Yeah, there is a kill switch uh, that Apple has, but as far as I know, they've never employed it. Uh, the kill switch is mostly meant for uh, exploitative or manipulative apps that would you know, essentially qualify as malware. But I don't think anything that's come down, either because Apple later says it shouldn't be there, like even emulators and things like that that have snuck on the App Store, as far as I know, Apple has never employed the kill switch. So these people have the game on their phone. I think they don't quite understand that's... It's not being removed from their phone. But furthermore, uh, it frustrates me when people say that that whole line about, like, well, you're making 50K a day. I would put up with that. Mm. It's it's easy to look at a list of, of idle death threats that probably don't mean anything but are not directed at you and look at that uh, and just say, well, I could deal with that. It is far, far different when all of that is directed at you. It feels very right. personal. It feels very focused. And it feels very directed in a way that you don't feel when you're just looking at a timeline pointed at someone else. And you think you could deal with that, but when you have hundreds or thousands of people, and for me, you know, I think, you know, for all of us, when we've said something uh, that either uh, pissed a lot of people off or maybe said something dumb that results in a lot of backlash, and you get those people, it only takes one. It really only takes one to get under your skin and potentially ruin your day. And if there are some people that can put up with that, that's great, uh, but I don't think that's most people, and I think it's easy to forget what it must feel like uh, when you have a mob banging down your door telling you, we hope you die. Um, and that and that disturbs me that we have lost any empathy for that situation, or at least it seems like a lot of people have. Well, I, I did a video on this uh, shortly after Phil Fish did his dramatic exit from the industry. Mm -hmm. um, where a lot of people say, oh, well, you should get a thicker skin if you're going to go out and put opinions or products out in the public space. You should have a thick skin. What people don't quite understand is that they've got thick skins. They've got very thick skins, but thick is not impenetrable. Sure. Uh, everything wears down. The toughest plate armor will get damaged through overuse. And when someone sends a death threat or some sort of abuse or insult to someone, to them, they've done it once. They don't realize they might be the 500th person that day to have done that to someone. And right. once you get worn down, you know, there's raw skin underneath. And that's even positive stuff can do that if you get it enough times. Like, um, I, in a lot of the stuff I do, my videos, podcasts, what, what have you, I show some affinity for the actor Willem Dafoe. Now, every time Willem Dafoe farts, I get several hundred links from people to it of, hey, Jim, did you see this? And I'm like, yeah. And, and even if I publicly several times say, I've seen it. I've seen the poster for Nymphomaniac with Willem Dafoe going, ooh, want it. I've seen it. <laughs> you still get it. Um, you know, I had to tell people, yeah, I know that the BBC quoted that Dungeon Keeper article I did. My granddad linked me to it, uh, and I still get it. And it's positive stuff, and it's wonderful to see, but you still get it hundreds and hundreds of times. And even the good stuff can just... Like ruin your perspective of things because it it's just overwhelming. Happens. It's like how it's how do you process all of that at once? Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's water torture. It's it's the same principle of water torture. Enough things on one point hitting away over and over again will drive you mad. Do you have any idea how many times people have sent me 
Nicolas Cage as Disney princesses. <laughs> it is. I've sent, been sent that link hundreds of times over the last six months. I've yeah. seen it, just so everyone knows. I have seen Nicolas Cage as Disney princesses. Yeah. I tr- I it try is not very to get, funny. I try not to get mad at people, because I know to them it is the first time. Yeah. To them it's the first time, and I, I don't want to be the asshole who you know, singles out a guy and criticizes them. I used to uh, take criticism a lot more um, seriously. Well, I say criticism, I still take criticism seriously. Insults a lot more seriously than mm-hmm. I do now uh, and respond a lot more to them. But I've, I've had to try and really remember that to them this really is the first time it's been done. Right. Um, they've not seen anyone else say the exact same thing. They've not seen anyone make the same joke. They've not seen anyone level the same accusation, they've not seen someone send you the same link to those xenomorph shoes. It's it's tough to do, but you know, it's it's a shame, and, and I, I think it's a shame what happened to the Flappy Bird guy, even if you don't like the guy's game. Um, because everything has someone who hates it. I said this once before, everything is Twilight to somebody. Yeah, sure. And you to sneer at Flappy Bird because it's not your idea of what a game should be. Even if you were to ignore the, the other accusations around it, if you just don't like the game and you find it offensive it's doing well, mm, fuck you a little bit. Because that is just a supremely arrogant um, attitude to have. And I would highly recommend people read the uh, piece that the Indie Gamer Chick wrote this weekend um, on her site, which was about that kind of thing, about people within the indie sphere ruining it, making indies look bad because there are these few vocal people that have this idea of what a game should be. Mm-hmm. And whether you're sneering at an indie game um, or sneering at Call of Duty, like there's room for everything. And yeah. we shouldn't find it offensive for the game you didn't like is doing well. To be fair, I guess there's maybe not necessarily... I don't know if we're, we, we want to transition to a different topic here, but maybe there's well, not we'll, room we'll for let everything. Be, we'll let this be the final word, and then we'll transition. Okay. Oh, I was just going to say, because, you know, there, maybe there isn't necessarily room for everything, because, as I recall, Jim, you wrote a review of a, uh, a different mobile game recently that uh, you, you said... Oh, that right, yeah, sure. Yeah. Absolutely no place for whatsoever in this industry. And I'm, that would glad be that was your, I'm glad that was your last point, because, as, <laughs> as Patrick said last point, I was thinking, there's one thing I've got to quickly backtrack on, can I squeeze it in? Yeah, go, and, go right and, ahead. And that is it. Um, I should add, as a disclaimer... A singular piece of art mm-hmm. one should not find offensive. A potentially reckless business model is something else entirely. Sure. Uh, if we're talking business structures, um, I also remember because I've got a gym position coming up this morning where I also make these points. Um, <laughs> so I've got to make sure I'm consistent. Um, that's something else. When we're talking about something like Dungeon Keeper and all the other games like it that are just damaging the market um, and, and just ruining the credibility of, 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 a, of a business model I'm a big believer in. I believe very much in free-to-play done right. This free-to-wait thing, I find... I, I think it's going it's to... It's an aggressive exploitation of a bubble before it bursts. And I think history has proven time and time again that is a terrible way of doing business. That is short-sighted loathsome, greedy, the work of hacks, and it's probably going to benefit a few people at the top who take the money and run, but it's going to destroy everyone else, and I find it very sad when when you get developers at Mythic say, uh, backing that up. I'm like, you're kind of trying to justify and, and validate something that's going to ruin your career in the long run. I, I find that very sad. 
Yeah, I wrote a thing, like a column, I think, last year, right? I, I had the gall to kind of stand up for the notion that free-to-play in its, by itself, inherently, is not an evil thing. That it is something that can be done in a way that is to benefit of both the developers and the players. Uh, that it is something that can be, you know, utilized for good. I've, I've increasingly felt guilty for writing that as, you know, the year kind of wore on as we got into this year, because there have been way, way more examples of people doing just blatantly disgusting things with it versus actually doing worthwhile things. It's actually good that you mentioned that Loadout is a game that does that well, because I actually want to play that now. Because um, there are so few examples of games that actually do the free-to-play thing well without exploiting it brutally, especially in, like, the last, you know, six to nine months. Like, it was, I think Forza was, like, one of the first big games I ever played that felt like it was completely, you know, kneecapped by that experience. So when I read this, you know, review of Dungeon Keeper that you did, which is probably, you know, as someone who's reviewed a lot of bad games in his day, I will say that is one of the most savage reviews I've probably ever read of a video <laughs> game. And I mean, that is a compliment. Thank Kudos you, sir. To you. Thank you. Uh, you know, just seeing how deep down that rabbit hole that game goes was kind of, was just galling. You know, yeah. I never expected that anyone would actually be that blatant and that brutal about it, but they were. And, I mean, you, you were obviously a fan of Dungeon Keeper in the franchise before, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, what what did you feel when you first got your hands on that and were like, holy shit, what is this? Oh, I mean, it, it helped that I was primed. Um, Rich Stanton had uh, tweeted a, uh, an image of it. Um... A lot of other people were talking about it. Uh, Boogie was talking about it. Francis was was talking about it, and, and we were making fun of it back and forth. And I, I was kind of prepared for the most part, but it really isn't until you get your hands on it that you see just how that it really dawns on. Because you can tell someone, oh, I click on a block and it takes a day to mine, and that sounds disgusting mm -hmm. and, until you experience it. Until you <laughs> click on it and you think. You put the phone down and look at it and think, I'm playing I'm playing it now. This is the experience. Me this is the game. Here. <laughs> I, just, I think, um, and again, this is kind of spoiling uh, the, the Jimquisition video I've got coming up in um, about half an hour. Um, to me, there is no excuse. It's by far the most, it's, it's now my least favorite business tactic, uh, gameplay model, because the sheer lack of imagination you need to reach for the lowest of hanging fruit, like, it's not a game, and I hate that criticism of most things. People say that about Gone Home, they say it about The Walking Dead, they say that's not a game. Most things are. This isn't a fucking game. This is taking the bare idea of a game, because there's no interaction. Clicking on blocks isn't a game. Um, just giving you the concept of a game and holding even that thin slice of an idea to ransom. If that's the, the scale of your imagination to think, here's a game, now fuck you, you're not having it, now give me money. And then when you give them money, all you're doing is unlocking the opportunity to give them more money later to do the same non-interaction. That's so unbelievably just unimaginative, uh, un scrupulous, just what a hack you have to be to to do that, to to not even make a game, to, not, to just fabricate a cash delivery system where you sit there and say, give me money, and fuck Square Enix for doing it with all the bravest as well. I can't say that enough times. I'll take every opportunity I can take. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, what I think really frustrates me uh, the most about all this is that, a little to Alex's point about, you know, free-to-play in you know, its purest form as an ideal, like, is a really amazing idea because the idea that more people would get to experience 
games, more people would get to experience, you know, the medium that I really love, formatted into a business model that, you know, gives people greater access to those experiences is a really tremendous idea. Like, I love the idea that more people don't have barriers to entry to experience games. And in some ways, maybe they aren't, you know, quote-unquote gamers or play games, but because something's free, maybe they'll engage with it on a level uh, that they wouldn't because they don't consider themselves that type of person. And the way it's being perversely distorted as essentially uh, psychology exploitation, um, and that's the part that I, you know, I, that's the part that really weirds me out is essentially uh, how a lot of free-to-play business models that are exploitative are exploiting people's uh, psychological uh, I call it psychological warfare. I, uh, that's, that's what I label it because it's not... It's not a. It's an adversarial, is what it is. It's a fight between you and the game. Right. Um, which is one of the reasons why I don't like microtransactions in $60 games, in actual paid retail stuff, because a lot of people say, well, you can just ignore them. You can't. That's not how microtransactions work. Right. It's a psychological pummeling against you. That's what Dead Space 3 did. And I still like Dead Space 3 as a game, but it was damaged by microtransactions because it puts in that you've got a wait around thing. It dangles the carrot and won't give you, ever give you the carrot until you give them more money. And you can't ignore that. Even if you think you've ignored it, well done you. That game just beat you. Right. Have you heard from EA recently? I've got quite a few fans at EA. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, 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 you got, you got to imagine EA is a bit... Sorry. Oh, go on. I was just saying, I've got to imagine there's a few bitten tongues in the EA offices sure. that, that I help relieve a little sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you can't, like, EA is the kind of company, like, it's not, whatever EA puts out and whatever Dungeon Keeper represents, it is a small, you know, it may represent what, you know, the high end of EA wants, the executives want of their business models, but there are good people that work EA, and I'm sure the fight sure. that we're talking about right now has happened countless times in meeting rooms. They just lost because the profit models show there are better ways to go, quote-unquote better ways to go in terms of uh, squeezing cash out of people. Mm -hmm. But there are people there that are, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, when we talk about the things that we get out of these jobs, uh, that's one of those things that I get really pumped up about, is the idea that you're giving a voice to people that can't go out there and speak about it. Like, there are not, e VA employees want to keep their jobs, they can't go out and just start talking about how much they hate this business model. They have to just sort of maybe point to, look at all these people upset, uh, and that requires, you know, folks like ourselves mobilizing and being, you know, a platform for that anger, and I think that's, that's really important. Well, it always warms my heart when I get a developer, sometimes publicly, more often privately, after, say, a Jimquisition episode's gone live, just thanking me for saying something they wish they could say or, or have tried to say before. Um, first of all, it lets me think I might know what I'm talking about, which is always nice, because I sometimes wonder. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's nice to feel you can do that. Um, and, yeah, I've always said I love games as an art form, I love games as an entertainment medium, I hate them as a business. I love the art, I hate the business. And the same with companies. I love the people, I hate the executives. I hate mm -hmm. the, the part of them that wears the suit and the tie. Um, the, the people within the suit and the tie, they're fine. Uh, and I'm not suggesting we, you know, go around to Activision and undress Bobby Kotick. Um, but maybe if we did, he'd enjoy it, we'd enjoy it, everyone would get along. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not having a good time with that mental image, to be honest. With you. <laughs> I'm having too good a time with that mental image. Uh, uh. Yeah, 
Well, as we as we begin to wind on the show, if folks have a couple questions they want to direct to me in the Giant Bomb chat, uh, we'll pick one or two of those out as uh, we begin to uh, wind down the show. Uh, we're kind of running out of time, but at least want to touch on uh, you know something that uh, I mentioned on Twitter and uh, Jim, you had in a recent video, um, which you know I think a lot of people oversimplified the argument, and you could certainly uh, say that maybe I did that as well, although I wasn't really talking about your argument in my tweets, although people uh, certainly connected them, uh, was this idea that Steam needs more quality control. I was wondering if you could maybe lay out the the quick version of, of what you were arguing for. I was hoping to run out the clock on that. I didn't get away with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I did a video last week that said Steam needs quality control. Um, it goes back a lot to what we were saying about the free-to-play stuff, about how the free-to-play model has been wrecked and given a terrible reputation by the amount of shit that's exploiting it. And the mobile market itself, a lot of knockoff, awful games have come out and, and ruined the credibility of the mobile platform, something else I used to be a big believer in. And I fear that could happen with Steam. Um, thanks, in light, thanks in part to Early Access. All things that are noble and good, um, in theory, but because there's absolutely no quality control, no oversight, I fear that Steam could ruin its own credibility. Um, when you see games like Castle Miner Z um, sneak off from Xbox Live in the uh, games where it belongs and end up on Steam, um, I worry, because I remember when getting a game on Steam was a mark of against quality, a mark of against prestige, and now it doesn't feel that way. When a game like Guys of the Wolf, when a game like Recoil can come out so broken as to be unplayable, I, I find it shocking that a game is being sold in that state. And while I totally get other arguments, I, I understand the free market, I understand, the, I understand that I'm a woolly liberal doing a video for a lot of young libertarians, I understand how philosophically we've got problems there, but at the same time I just, I would like to see something a bit more of a guarantee, because right now I can buy something on, say, GOG.com and feel like the game's going to at least work. I don't feel like I have that assurance on Steam anymore, and I, I find that potentially troubling. So, so my feelings on that are that uh, if you think of the two options that I, I think actually face Steam going forward, I mean, they've kind of dipped their toe into it with green light, is that I, I think Steam's inevitable endgame, uh, whether it happens this year or next year, I think it will happen sooner rather than later, is that Steam will go the App Store model. Uh, they will tear down all the walls and people can submit anything. And then the onus becomes on Valve to have either good discoverability or have curators that their front page is what you're talking about. The quality control doesn't occur in terms of what is brought into the Steam ecosystem, but it's what you're presented with as your options. Uh, because if we go back to the old system uh, that Steam used to operate under, it was essentially... I think my understanding was two or three people that decided what went on Steam at all, which is A, overwhelming and uh, crazy for how big Steam has gotten. That's just not sustainable over the long haul. Sure, sure. Um, and I, I am more uncomfortable with two or three people deciding what is good or what games are, even if they are from Valve, a studio that I have a lot of respect for, than uh, the problems that come with tearing down all of the walls and just allowing everyone in. Because I think I trust the two or three Valve people more than I trust the users of Greenlight um, that go on a power trip, but if we're going down the path of 
you know, more accessibility and, and lower barriers to entry to the marketplace itself, I'd rather just tear all of them down and say, let anyone in and then spend a lot of time making sure that front page is exactly what you should be looking for on Steam if you don't want to do the research, if you just want to go to the front page and be told, hey, here's what's good, here's what's on sale. I think the onus is on, on Valve to make that the better front page because interface is not necessarily their best uh, uh, characteristic. And I think if they were to improve on that, I think we would both be happy because uh, I think there's a world where you get what you want and I get what I want. Absolutely, yeah. That's, I, I think a lot of people felt like I was arguing for some draconian, overbearing dictatorship. Um, I don't believe in the old days of, uh, of Steam. Um, in, in the old days of Steam, they still let fucking shit go on. Um, right. But you're right. I think the answer lies somewhere in between uh, of, of having, having a market with some sort of quality control. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean we block games from coming. It can mean curation. It can mean giving visibility to things that deserve it and burying the stuff that doesn't. It, it's definitely... Um, there's a compromise to be had, and I, um, that's all I want to see. I want to see Steam retain its reputation as a place for a quality gaming experience. And I want the developers to benefit from that, the developers that get on there and that get uh, featured on Steam and get to say we were featured on Steam, this is a big step for us. Because um, they, they deserve that. The, the maker of, of you know, jazz punk doesn't deserve to get equal billing with guys of the fucking wolf. <laughs> it just... It, it, um, so, yeah, I, I, and, and really, I mean... Steam does do quality control, and, and it's, in fact, on the very day my video went up, had to employ it when um, Crescent Moon Games' Paper Monsters went up without right. their approval, and it was obviously this uh, game that another publisher that, that had an old version of the game shadily put up there. And Steam had to step in and take it down, and it probably would have been better if Steam had been able to do that uh, beforehand, just to ensure that games A, work, and B, are owned by the people putting them up there. Um, it would be nice to just have some sort of minimal standard, some sort of guarantee that if I'm seeing a game, um, you know, on Steam's featured list, I can buy it and get at least those two guarantees. Well, and I think one thing that would go a long ways towards solving this for the future is uh, if there was some way, like Steam does offer refunds, but you kind of need to bend their arm in order to get it. And yeah. I think. If Valve is going to open the gates in this way, especially with early access, I think early access makes this a particular sticking point, especially for me, um, because you're selling games that are broken in a lot of ways, on purpose. That is part of early access. And the fact that there isn't any sort of standardized refund system uh, as a part of Steam, I think if there was one, it would make this problem a lot easier to swallow for a lot of the mm -hmm. negative consequences. If there was a way, if a developer was being disingenuous for the player to engage with a refund or at least uh, you know, requesting one from Valve in a formal capacity uh, that was more than just uh, complaining enough uh, and then Valve kind of doing it on the side but not wanting to promote it because they don't want everyone to do it, uh, I think that would go a long way to making a lot of people feel more comfortable because if, if you can pay money and then know, you know what, if they straight up lied to me, because they took advantage of, you know, being able to release an early a game early uh, or uh, something of that nature, but know that you can get your money back. That makes you probably a lot more comfortable with spending that money because there's a lot less of a downside to it if you can get that money back, reasonably so. Yeah, I mean, even you can be even a bit more um, uh, 
open with refunds than that. Uh, at least for a few games I've bought on Android, I get a limited window where I can get a refund, no questions asked. Like, it might be 10 minutes, an hour, or something. But if I can, you can tell with a lot of those games, the second you open it up, that it's a piece of shit. Um, but I get the refund option instantly the moment I buy it. And if Steam had something like that, like, say, a half an hour to an hour after you buy something, so you can just try it, and if, you, if it looks like total garbage, then, you know, just no questions asked, get the money back. Just not forever, but just this limited amount of time. I think that might make people a lot more happy, and, and, and I'd be a lot more willing to take a gamble on stuff. Yeah, Doesn't I'm Origin right. have something like that? Say again? Doesn't Origin have something like that? Because I know, I mean, obviously EA's had a couple of games that maybe people want to return. Recently. I know they've got a refund policy. They do, uh, yeah. They uh, do have a refund policy of some some sort. I'm not sure... This also represents how, how, how little any of us use Origin that we're only really vaguely anyway. aware they may have a policy that is actually more consumer-friendly uh, than what's on uh, Steam, you know, the irony yeah. of that. Uh, but, yeah, I, 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 think, I think you might be onto something, Jim, there, is that the, the way to standardize that is maybe not putting the onus on the player to explain the reason they want the refund, but if you time-limit it in a way that, you know, you can jump in, tell yeah. pretty quickly if this is totally broken, and then get out... Um, but you know, well, if you pass I might 30... be old-fashioned in thinking that the customer shouldn't have to explain the customer's self. Um, you know, I, I I remember when I was a young man, uh, <laughs> the customer was, was always right, but it seems to have become the customer has no rights, uh, which shouldn't be. Uh, I think the customer should be able to, you know, at least for a limited time, so they don't take the piss, is to be just. I bought this game. I did not like it. I want my money back. That's valid. Most stores have always... Like, people were trying to defend Steam by saying, well, brick-and-mortar stores don't have an onus to do things. Brick-and-mortar stores will also let you get a refund, no questions asked. Some if we, if we're going to draw that comparison. The good ones will, yeah. 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 Well, not always the good ones, but the, the ones with good refund policies too. <laughs> yes, there we go. All right. Now we straighten that out. Um, well, it sounds like actually we answered most people's questions uh, in the discussions we just had, um, so I think we will start to bring this show to a close. Uh, Jim, it's been awesome having you on. We really oh, appreciate you. Thank you very uh, much. Sir. We would uh, definitely love to have you on again sometime soon. Um, and for folks that maybe aren't familiar with you, somehow, if that is possible, uh, how can they follow you after, uh, after this uh, show finishes? Uh, yeah, you can, well, I mean, you can always follow me on Twitter, at Jim Sterling. Uh, my YouTube channel is also Jim Sterling, all one word. I make it really easy for you. Um, yeah, you can also see my reviews and my show, The Jimquisition, um, one of which, The Jimquisition, is going up in about 18, 17 minutes uh, at The Escapist Magazine. That's escapistmagazine.com. Cool. Uh, Alex, what are you up to this week? Uh, I'm going to finally get that Super Mario 2 video out of the way. Uh, I might just write a review of Oli Oli because I keep playing it and I really like it and I just I want more people to play that game. So I might do that as well. Uh, and tonight I will be on Aubrey Citizen's Straight Shoot podcast after Monday Night Raw talking about some wrestling. So uh, there's, I think, like a Google Hangouts page if you want to go, you know, RSVP for that or something tonight. Uh, otherwise, there will be an archive tomorrow. So that, that is what I got coming up right now. What about you? Uh, later today, uh, well, I, I'll be doing my Spelunky stream in about 45 minutes. Um, mm -hmm. I saw Chris Remo's score today, and uh, there is no way I'm going to win. <laughs> so, today so true is of many just, days. Today is just a wash. Uh, cool. He got such a, he got like 700,000, which is just, uh, and, uh, that, uh, let's see, 
uh, 1 p.m. my time, so 11 a.m. Pacific, um, and then 2 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Uh, I will be uh, a guest on Jeff Kanata's uh, DLC show uh, that he recently just started. Uh, he was a guest on uh, Bottom of the AM uh, during a week that you were gone uh, some time back, around the time when we started doing guests. Uh, so I'm returning the favor, and I'll be on his show. Um, unfortunately, I don't really know how you watch it. I Just look at my Twitter or Jeff's Twitter and... You'll find a link to it uh, later today. Uh, and at some point, hopefully today, after I do that, uh, I'm going to write something about uh, the Flappy Bird stuff. Uh, you know, given the the TED Talk that I gave last year, I have a lot of thoughts on uh, the lack of empathy that people um, have for folks that are sort of the targets of online abuse. And uh, this seems like a good time to kind of weigh in on that. So I'm hoping to, to write something about that before the end of the day. And then I don't know what's going on the rest of the week. I haven't thought that far ahead. So, uh, Fair enough. That will be a show for us. Jim, Indeed. thanks again. Uh, yeah, appreciate you coming Thank on. You, sir. Uh, thanks, everyone, for watching. And uh, we will see you guys again on Friday. Uh, and we'll have a guest again next Monday. I just don't know who yet. Uh, so I'll figure that out at some point this week. Uh, all right, Friday. I will see you then, Alex. Oh.